You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Welcome to this episode of HEDEX, where we tap back into industry, and I'm joined again by Martin Betts. G'day, Martin. G'day, Carl. It's um, another fascinating week in the life of Australian higher education and a great, great chance for us to give voice to um, another point of view from our industry partners that you brought on for us today. So what's been happening? What's what's news around traps? Oh, well, I, I feel as though I say every week that there's never been a, a bigger week for the sector. Maybe I'm just uh, getting really excited about everything that's going on. But since, since we were last um, in front of the mic... There's been some really big things happening in that the the quilts, the quality indicators of learning and teaching database that the federal government administers for the sector generates its annual data on student experiences and satisfaction and engagement only once a year. The data for 2020 came out last week. It didn't make pretty reading, particularly if you're from one of the... The, the group of eight, if you're from a big research-intensive university, if you're from a city centre, and if you're from a city centre in Melbourne in particular, there's a lot to um, be concerned about in what students are giving us feedback of their experience and their levels of engagement. So the students had its voice, the government's um, let its views be known again, the, the new Minister for Education has followed up the the message from a few weeks ago from a Prime Minister saying we need to change our business models by saying... We must do better. Um, a report card that says that there's plenty of room for improvement and probably an indicator that the government doesn't think the sector is both listening to it and now requires it to listen to its students and requires it to, I think, move faster in, in what it's trying to do to transform. Fascinating. And so given that you're so close to it, is there anything in particular, any sort of key nuggets that you think you, you'd hand out in terms of advice from that? Well, um, I think listening to different voices is really important, which is why today's opportunity to hear right from right from the the mouth of the those that are so involved in the employment of graduates in one of Australia's fastest growing and most innovative companies is is so good. But I mean, you have to listen to your customers in any organisation. I, I I think as I look back and study disruption as it's happened in other sectors, those sectors that have been blindsided by disruption have been largely inattentive to some obvious feedback from customers that was there for them but they just didn't pay enough attention to um i mean i think this is a time when it's it's so easy to be distracted isn't it for goodness sake these floods coming on top of everything else for universities with campuses all over the country but um the fact that there's a bit of a change in some of the dynamic on this i mean normally the quilt data comes out every year and no one really pays very much attention to it most universities follow it up with a look at us we've done really really well we've come better than last year or a little not many of them are saying that this year or we've come better than the average or we've become better we're the best in victoria or we're the best in wa people are being very quiet about the quilt data this year because it is so con- con- it is so strikingly different and the bit of it i mean we would have expected this after last year's challenges but the fact that students are saying that they're not engaged in anything like the same extent as the learning experiences that universities have gone um, out of their way to try and provide in trying circumstances I, th- I think is really challenging and and the and the little um shafts of blue light there in amongst all those clouds i think is 
the place of our regional universities. We heard that with Helen Bartlett from Sunshine Coast last week. The fact that the falls have been much lower in regional universities is noteworthy. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, I quite like, despite it being challenging and some of those results not being ideal, the idea that there's a now a quite a clear problem at hand and a, a clear opportunity for uh, universities to a- approach that in a variety of ways. We're fascinated to see which ones go at it from a way that's tried and proven in the past um, with the assumption that the audience is the same and those that actually dip into the audience now and their experience and their needs and then approach it strategically very differently. Well, the, the, I mean, the classic of change management, isn't it, that you need to start with a burning platform and 2021 could be no bigger learning platform. 2020 gave it to start with, with the loss of revenue, um, with the need to reorganize and, and, and change organization structure, review programs that were being offered. But with a long-term change in the way that students are, are, are experiencing, all, well, not just students, student staff and all of us in the population are using technology to experience services and products. There is a a burning platform in a number of dimensions now, which gives a real opportunity for universities to change. And and change, of course, is, I mean, you can say you want to go in a different direction from where you're going, but if you're going to take 50,000 students and 5,000 staff with you, you're going to need some very clear vision, some very clear sense of purpose, some strong leadership, and a, a large group of people who share share the passion and align and have their culture aligned to go in the same direction that you want to take them. That's the really big opportunity and the really big challenge right now. And do you think everyone can do it? I always look at these situations and I think, you know, you're relatively clear on the steps that you need to take, but some people have never done this before. So they're in a situation where this is entirely new and their actual aptitude and their ability to embark on challenge, to identify challenge, embark on the steps to to, to drive into that challenge and, and make a difference. I think history is going to be really kind to those leaders that do stand up and demonstrate that sort of entrepreneurial disruptive leadership skill and perpetually challenge the ways that things have been done. I think we're starting to see that. We've, started, we've been talking about it now for six months. I think we are actually starting to see that in some of the, the small universities at the moment. Well, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's sort of backs to the wall stuff, isn't it? If, if, if you are one of the big up until now dominant players with large reserves i mean the two of the universities that suffered most this this last week in that data were were monash and university of melbourne in victoria but there are also two universities that announced financial results at the end of last year that came out just a few weeks ago showing surpluses so i don't know if even though the 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 warning signs of the student voice are perhaps loudest in this last week for some of those sorts of universities they may, they maybe don't feel the pain of that feedback as as much as those with much slimmer margins so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that those that really have a go to disrupt and transform and change and perhaps are easiest to change the culture with are smaller universities that that, that might be taking a bigger hit with some of these circumstances and have less resources or reputation or history to fall back on. I think it's an it's a echo phenomenon that you're going to find, like we have with all sorts of technology, that the organisations that make a difference now, you know, they don't actually have the effect on their competitive landscape until many echoes later or ripples later. So the driving preference and loyalty and, and desire to go to a university isn't going to change overnight. We're not going to see those results. It's no surprise to me that we've got the the um, challenge and the difference between what Melbourne Uni- University reports in terms of its um, 
a financial status as opposed to um, student experience. I don't think they're necessarily related. Well, I think their relationship, if there is one at all, because I, I think I agree with you, is probably got a time lag to it. And the other data that came out last week that probably is having us clutch at straws in the sector was the, the, the data from employee satisfaction with graduates, employer satisfaction with graduates. And of course, that's lag data because the graduates that employees were evaluating last year will have probably graduated from the year before, before all of this um, fun and game started. And there's actually been a bit of an uptake in the lag data from what employers think of graduates. But as I think um, you've, you've led me to believe we can expect in the interview this week, there's some signs that our employers are becoming a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more sophisticated in what they're looking for in their own cultures and their organisations and what they're seeing they're getting out of universities and graduates. There's no doubt that's happening. I don't think it's a, a monumental transformative wave, but certainly it's happening over time that the expectations of universities to deliver um, graduates that are going to be right for you know job fit to bring a, a lot of capability to an organisation. Where companies get those people from is changing over time. And this week I had an opportunity to speak with two senior leaders from REA Group. Now REA Group is the holding company or the parent company of realestate.com.au, Real Commercial. And the story behind REA Group is fascinating. So REA Group started, I think, probably 25 or 30 years ago in someone's garage. It's now a $17.6 billion tech company. It's one of the world's leading tech companies in its in its field. And speaking to the leaders, both Mary and Henry, about what makes REA Group tick has been fascinating. We have also spent time working with REA Group and my firm, the Brand Institute, for five years. So some time ago, I was under the hood and I understood it, but it was great to be able to speak with both of them and get a real read on what's happening. So Mary Lamanis is the Chief People Officer at REA Group, and she's responsible for culture. She's responsible for people strategy across the global network and does everything from culture and transformation through to functional HR operations. Henry is the Chief Strategy Officer and also the CEO for REA Asia. So they've both got enormous remits and both tap into strategy and people and what makes the organization tick 24-7. So why don't we jump into that uh, interview and hear what they had to say. I'm looking forward to it, Carl. So Henry and Mary, welcome to HeadX. Thanks, Thanks. Carl. Great to be here. Just for our listeners, I thought it might be really important to paint the picture and put people in the picture around what REA Group is and some of its history. Perhaps, Henry, you can help us with that. Yeah, sure. So look, we... Um, run in a number of markets across the globe. We're basically a, um, a marketplace that is focused on property. And so we work across, you know, people's homes. So houses, we work across the commercial sector, and we also work with developers both in building new homes and apartments for people and, and house and land, as well as um, new commercial buildings. We also work across the financial industry um, because finances are usually pretty tied to property uh, and we work with the industry in lots of different ways, but we also have a broker business that helps people find the best home loan for them. And we also consider ourselves a, a bit of a data science business as well. So you can imagine there's uh, lots of data and analytics that is important to people in making informed decisions as it comes to making decisions about how they live their, live their best life as it relates to homes. And so we work in that space as well. And REA Group is one of Australia's greatest sort of startup tech stories, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's it's been a journey. It's um, certainly the, the company has actually been around a lot longer than what people realise. Um, but, you know, right at, right at its infancy, it really was a company that was trying to help 
uh, our customers, our customers today, um, advertise more effectively. And when the transition started to happen, you know, from print to digital in many, many categories, um, you know, real estate was no different. And so th these days, most people effectively find their property using some sort of digital means um, in the markets that we serve. In Australia, our hero brand is obviously realestate.com.au and we run real commercial as well. Um, and so our customers work with homeowners uh, to advertise their property to the biggest audience available. Uh, and, you know, the logic is you have the, the most number of people looking at your property, that creates competition and that maximizes price. So um, that's, that's what the business helps them to do. Terrific. And so with regard to HeadX, you know, we spend all of our time working in the higher education sector, particularly around brand and cultural alignment. Um, and, you know, I've had a history with REA Group some years ago, and I certainly enjoyed that. And as far as, you know, creating a, a benchmark or an exemplar brand in terms of cultural excellence, from my experience over 20 years, there's been no better organisation than REA Group. Um, and so, Mary, do you want to tell us a little bit about the culture these days? I'd like to think uh, it continues to evolve, Carl, preserving the great and uh, hopefully, you know, continuing to improve on maybe the things we can do a bit better. I think it's it's definitely it's something we hold very dear. We, we do see it as part of our, you know, competitive advantage for talent. We, we talk about it as our secret source. So if you were to talk specifically about what that looks like, I think our values really you know, represent what we strive for from a cultural standpoint. You know, we talk about owning it. We talk about keeping it real, uh, reimagining it, inspiring it, mm. doing it with heart. Uh, and I think those values really exemplify doing it as one team. You know, they. I think if you think about those as, as, as headings, I think they really um, talk to, you know, the essence of what we're trying to achieve culturally and, and like, any organisation, you know, we don't always get it right, but we're really focused on making sure that we stay on top of it and really deeply understand where we're at and how we could do it differently. We've literally just closed a culture diagnostic across the entire REA group to better understand our culture uh, and really keen to see what more that will give us in terms of uh, insight into our culture. Now, I know when, when I was walking the halls or, or the new building in, in Cremorne, um, I felt really old at the time and I might have been 35. So what is the average age of the uh, REA employee? Uh, it's a great question, Carl. I actually haven't looked at that census data recently. Uh, you know, my guess is, you know, uh, my thinking is it's probably late 20s, early 30s would be yeah. that right. Yeah, I would have said early, early 30s. Uh, yeah. You know, I think as we continue to mature as an organisation, you know, when you know we're an ASX, well, now 50, maybe even 35, depending on what day you look at our our market cap, um, you know, we're definitely continuing to grow our business. And I think with that comes a continued focus on experience um, and, and, and bringing people into the organisation who, who, you know, who, who can bring that to the table as, as well as obviously the right capabilities. So I think you, we might have seen a slight shift from when you were walking the halls, uh, but it's definitely a, a youthful culture. And I can safely say I'm definitely no longer the youngest person in yeah. the room. Yes. Great. Probably the opposite these days at REA. So just focusing back on higher education a little bit. So, and look, feel free to, to um, take this question any way you like, but what's the role that higher education has played in REA's success to date? You know, things like joint collaborations, um, you've worked together with the university on something or you rely on universities to provide particular a talent um, based on your capability set. Yeah, I might start with a, a broader 
frame of reference on that, Carl. I think for us, you know, our graduate program has been, you know, core to the way REA has has built, you know, some of its talent pool, and we've been running that since 2014. Uh, we've had over 65 people go through that, and it's great to say that 40 of them are still with us today, which is wonderful. Uh, so, so at its most foundational level, um, you know, the, the, the university sector has played a critical role in us being able to tap into that, those individuals. What we've continued to do is sort of expand more into what we call a springboard program, where potentially people have had that higher education and then moved into a different career field, then we bring them back in, or potentially have gone down a more practical route and are now looking to, to reshape their careers um, and, and, and looking for opportunities in, in a new space. You know, we, we have had a number of partnerships with different universities. Um, I don't know if I should mention them, Carl, or not. You no, you can. You should. Have a go. Um, you know, uh, I- including RMIT, for example, and, and, and helping develop particular programs uh, to look at capability building. You know, one of, one of um, Henry's and my shared team, uh, you know, team is actually doing one of those programs online at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and we we know we've had input as an organisation into developing those modules, mm. um, as well as also serving up the delivery of content to to various members and employers at REA. Henry, I don't know if there's anything you'd add to that. No, I think you've, you've summarised it well. I, I, there's so many different, um, you know, open days. I've got three kids myself, and one's just entered you know university, um, actually at RMIT, and. You know, seeing the, the various open days that are run, we get a lot of people that come through our building just to try to understand what does it feel like to enter the workforce. Mm. Um, and Carla, you know, I think I think you're aware that uh, you know you you actually helped build our experience, like the physical building and how that relates to our brand and 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 the mission that we're on. And it it's amazing to see what an impact that has, like creating a bit of a forward-looking connection for people that are at university what working life can feel like Mm. Um, and also when you go from one company to another just how fundamentally different it can be even though you're working in the same sector Mm. so I think there's formal sort of relationships which is what Mary was talking about but I think there's a lot of informal stuff that happens through connections with our staff people bringing their families through you know Mary hosts um, a family day at at the company and there's, there's lots of different touch points that um, impact people's perception of the connection between university and work. One of the things we, we talked about on another episode was preparing students as they come out of university to understand what it's like to be in a workplace and be it um, the, the requirements from a capability perspective, but more so socially and the soft skills of how do I get along with my team? And that, you know, you, you've got, mm. I don't know, 1,400 people now or 1,500 people, maybe more, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, we, we've just uh, uh, fully acquired our India business. So we've actually almost doubled that now, right. Carl. We're at about, mm. you know, almost 2,600. Wow. But yes, you know, uh, prior to that, which was only in late December, we were at about 1,400, yeah. Yeah, so look, that's a big business. And how do I, how do I socialise effectively? How do I find my, my spot? One of the things I think you've done really well, and it was a great project for us to work on, was that instead of just building a, a building, you actually built a home for your, your culture and brand to live and grow. So I think about the lifestyle of a student at a university campus, for them to then migrate into a workplace like REA is less barriers to success than there are in, say, moving into a more traditional business like a bank or an insurance company that might not have the same, same youthfulness to it. You know, you've got that sense of energy and everyone has this um, real welcoming 
uh, communication element to their character that's really encouraged through your culture. So I think that's um, whether you, whether you recognize that or not, but when I'm looking at it from a, a analysis of other organizations against yours, gee, it really stands out. And uh, so just for those people that don't know, REA Group is, is, is really a very strong tech organization. So when you think of the office, think about engineers. So it's not a sales-based um, company where you've got enormous sales forces anymore, I don't think. Your, your population would be mostly tech engineers. If you right? look at our, you know, if you look at sort of the, the tech community as a whole, it makes mm. up over, you know, roughly 50, to, let's call it 50 to 60% of our of our business mm-hmm. um, with, you know, with the rest being the combination of, you know, sales, marketing, you know, finance, HR, legal. Uh, but definitely I would say it is the majority, although not the clear majority of, of our business. And certainly when we think about who we're looking for, the experiences we want to create, that tech, that tech digital lens is front and centre for us. Right, so thinking about the, that population or that group of people, where do they come from? Are they coming from, you know, Google Academy? Are they coming from working in their basement and, and becoming a coder off watching YouTube? Or are they coming out of the traditional higher education platforms? I think t- typically at the beginning, it was predominantly all university. And now we're expanding more with boot camps. You know, we're doing more in that space uh, than we have in the past. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, we've got 14 women have been hired via our springboard uh, program over the past three and a half years from a boot camp or a return to tech. Interestingly, most of those hires um, also have degrees, uh, but degrees in other fields. And so they've decided to take a different path on their journey, um, you know, do the boot camps to build some of the technical capability and then look to join a program like our springboard to tech. We still see a lot of high value in our university graduates having had that experience. You know, it creates a, you know, a good solid baseline of understanding of skill set. And we definitely, you know, see that playing an important role um, moving forward. Mm. Do you think there's a a bigger opportunity for the higher education sector and universities to partner with you on joint projects? Yeah, look, I think whenever you have that partnership approach, it it never hurts. You know, I think for us to continue to provide a very um, live, you know, recent view of of, of what's on our minds and what we're seeing and what's evolving, what's becoming more important. You know, I think, Carl, when we spoke earlier, you know, I remember, I think you and I chatted about, you know, the soft skills have to be rebranded because they're really not soft. They're actually quite hard. And yeah. For a lot of particularly technology grads become the difference of being successful versus not successful in a business. Mm. It's never usually people's technical aptitude that trips them up. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the things that we would consider the softer skills. And so I think for universities and higher educators to understand how critical it is to be developing those capabilities as much as the technical, it's an and, it's not an all, mm. but absolutely, you know, I think they become the, the, the graduates and the springboarders who are most successful in our business and I'm sure probably in other businesses. Mm. I suppose that, that leads me to my last question, which is around change uh, ideas. You know, do, do you feel that the higher education sector and universities, I'm sure you've both been to a variety of universities yourself through your career, do you think things need to change? I mean, last year, we were forced into change in terms of digitization and the student experience. But traditionally, in terms of their value proposition and what they're offering the market, 
um, be it students, uh, undergraduate, mature age, whatever it might be. Are there any specific things that stand out for you that would be better for REA Group, better for tech companies, better for progressive organisations if they did something different? Look, I think, I think like like every business, I think you can always improve, and and I think you've got to modify it. You know, keep up with the marketplace. Um, I'd say there's probably three three areas where I think we should consider it. Um, and even sort of casting your mind back to your previous question, Carl, just around technologists, I think there are large segments that don't see themselves as technology people anymore. They actually see themselves as digital people. Okay. And so your definition of a technologist is much broader. They're, they're from people that can code to people that can do graphic design to people that can do, you know, a good at architecture to what we call product managers. And all of that falls into this big, broad bucket we call digital skills. And the people that um, succeed and thrive in companies like REA have a core functional skill set, but they're actually quite good at doing a number of those things to varying degrees, along with what we're now calling hard skills, which is the emotional intelligence part of how do you play play Uh well with others. Yes. So I think taking that on board if you look at just job titles at the moment, and you know, as I said, you know, I've got a, my eldest has just gone into university, and looking at courses and the just naming conventions that courses mm. have, and trying to align those to where the you think the industry is going, mm. is a bit of a disconnect there okay. in, in enabling how do people create a straight line or a straighter line into how do I end up being a product manager as a practical mm. example. So I'd say that's probably one. I think the second is, um, you know, as a, as a generalization, uh, the younger generation, but I think all of us want everything now. Mm. And if I reflect on my university years, and I, I love them, mm. um, but there's a lot of downtime, a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. And so you go, you know what, I'm now, you know, much more informed if I'm going into university than certainly I was when I, I went into university mm. and you're sort of beginning to do calculations like I can do a four-year degree and basically if I calculate all the downtime, that's like a year and a half of downtime. Or I can just go do a number of short courses and potentially land a job and work my way through a different pathway. These are the sorts of questions that I never thought to even ask. Mm-hmm. So I think how do you make things more efficient um, is a potential opportunity. Mm. And maybe as the third overlay, and I, you know, and I really have, have empathy for anybody that is in the education sector, the expectations and the bar has just gone up because mm. you know, certainly my crew, they're watching like TEDx and mm. you know, anything in, in that sort of specter. So you go to a lecture and you expect to be educated, entertained, engaged, (laughs) and do that day in, day out, like Mm. for my 20 contact hours that week. It's, um, you know, I think it's something that that the industry needs to think about is, is does that need to evolve? Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Great insights. The, um, just to reflect on that, the, the university repositioning that we did five years ago with Griffith University to, to land them in that, that idea of being um, a remarkable entity you know, remarkable for a variety of things, being first in family at university all the way through to taking the first photo of the atom or finding the cure for malaria. You know, Mm. it was remarkable, but that extended culturally into 
how do we make a brand promise of being remarkable if our lectures and our student experience isn't remarkable? Our campus isn't remarkable or our digital capability. So that consistency of delivery on promise is something that personally we've recognized is a big opportunity for universities. Mm. Mary, I wasn't sure whether you had any um, additions to that. I would absolutely endorse all of Henry's, you know, shares there and maybe go deeper in one and, and an oval and, and just a new idea. I think this notion of practical learning is just mm. so critical. You know, I was really fortunate. I did a degree where my degree required me to work during my summer holidays for a company. Um, and so to Henry's point about that acceleration, you know, I came out of uni, you know, I did a three-year degree, but I also had six months of ex practical experience under my belt. And that was invaluable in terms of finding a job, feeling like I fitted in faster. So, and I know it's complex to pull off, but that, that, that concept of practical experience, I think cannot be understated uh, from, from my perspective. And I think the, the sort of the fourth overlay as, a, as an attribute is, you know, all, all degrees have technical specialty. I think we need to start thinking about the bookends of what, you know, what we're now calling the harder skills, what used to be called the soft skills, but also commerciality. Like for most, most graduates, they will be going into, you know, into the, into the sectors that, you know, are commercial. Um, you know, of course, there's going to be people that choose to go into not-for-profit. Mm -hmm. But even then, there are commercial considerations in those organisations. And mm. so building fundamental commercial understanding, irrespective of degree mm. field, I think is something that I would really be encouraging universities to think about. And, and I, I get it. You've got to balance the needs of the technical specialty you're, you're building. But those bookends um, would be, I think, invaluable to, to, to helping graduates be better armed to take those steps into industry or wherever they choose to go. Yeah, it's a great visual image and a, and a really compelling message that I think universities really need to take heed and, um, and understand. So do you have any final comments for our listeners? No, look, it's been, it's been a pleasure to be on. I think my, my parting thought would just be the people that, uh, you know, that work within the teams that I look after that succeed, it's often not the degree they've done. It's their attitude and their ability to learn lots of different stuff um it's almost what they've learned in university more than anything else is the ability to learn how do yeah. i learn a new marketplace a new mm. discipline work well with others that that curiosity and attitude mm. um i think is a you know a wonderful thing that you can develop during your, your university years and rea as with many tech companies are built on that concept of exploration and innovation and so I can understand why that would be so important, not just for REA Group, for every organisation now. Yeah, very true. Thanks so much for joining me, Mary and Henry. It's been a thrill to have you on uh, HeadX. Thanks, Carl. Well, that was an interesting interview, Carl. What did you make of that, having worked with them before and then he heard it all brought to, to a head like that? Well, I think you can probably tell from the interview that they're both terrific people. And one thing I know about REA Group for a fact is that they don't muck around in terms of talent. They're very clear from the board level down that the quality of the organization is really a quality of the people within the organization. So Henry, I think Mary may have been there for three years and Henry's been there for something like 10. They are both big hitters doing a terrific job. What I noticed though, in that even from the interview, you can tell the camaraderie, you can tell that collaboration's hardwired into the way they operate. You know, they sort of supported one another's stories. They knew at which page the other person was on. And that's not just in this interview. I've seen that play out in very, very high stakes, technically difficult instances inside that organization. They come together as one 
And if you can't collaborate to innovate, you don't exist at REA Group. Well, it's certainly a striking contrast to the sort of um, way that I often hear people in the higher education sector talk about their organisations and talk about culture, Carl, that's for sure. I mean, you're talking about them being very aligned and team-oriented. I think one of the things that we find as a real challenge in higher education is uh, our whole process is built upon challenge, critique, and um, thrashing out and exploring ideas through challenge. Don't often lend themselves to the sort of behaviours and the sort of culture where everyone's always pulling in the same direction. And and, act, and acting for the wider organisation. So that was one of the biggest points of contrast for me. The other thing that was quite striking is that they have a, a real um, sense of humanity to them and their sense of communication. So the way they communicate, there's a real um, reliance on authenticity and being genuine in that culture. So they bring their whole selves to work and there's no side agenda. So when I think of them and I look at the way that they uh, communicate, and I think Henry made a really good point here when he said... The pressure's on universities because his his kids, he's got three kids, one lives at university this year, and a lot of the student body that he has had to mentor and manage through his um, career are used to watching TED Talks. They're used to watching you know, professional communicators do a terrific job of conveying a concept. Now, if I think about some of the lecture, lecturing capability, and look, I'm sure you'll have a view on this, many students are coming in now to university, particularly the big names, thinking I'm going to have a TED, TEDx or TED-like experience. Is that actually the case? Well, I th- I, it's palpably not. I mean, this, this, is, this is why the, this week's student experience data and employer, employer satisfaction data coming out so close to each other and us having this episode are so interesting and that cl- clearly it's not. And, and we, we've celebrated the heroic efforts in getting everything online in a couple of weeks last March that, that went on at the start of last academic year. But, but academics in universities have so many different cultural symbols that are presented to them and different measures of behaviours that are encouraged in them. The, the, the overriding one is to pursue research excellence and to be measured on publications and citations and PhD completions and, and the like, um, and their ability to pursue quite often individual research careers. Well, put someone that's had all of their um, values put in that sort of cultural direction suddenly being required to be a digital content producer with their own resources from their own homes in a to a standard that um, customers are expecting to match those that are provided by world-class tech companies and it's not surprising that it's been such a challenging um, set of data coming out from last year. So I, I, I think universities have a real job to do in looking at specialization within staff, the sort of distribution of tasks, and what, what it actually is that they're seeing as their key drivers for their business model and, and how they'll align a culture of, of the performance and the, and the um, contributions from all their different staff in this disrupted, digitally disrupted world in that context. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of contrast between the way someone like a tech company like an RIA group would approach culture and universities. I thought it might be worthwhile sharing what I know of um, REA group. And you heard heard Mary say that they've just deployed a, a culture survey. And one of the things that they're very good at is being aware of their employee experience so they can tailor it and make sure that they're meeting their employees' needs and also pointing them in the right direction culturally to meet strategic needs. 
So what they do particularly well, and this is almost like a, you know, a, a how to do culture in one minute, is they're very clear on understanding their base state culture. So what's happening at the moment? What's the climate? What's actually contributing to the employee experience? What expectations are being put on people, either overtly or covertly, in terms of a EVP or a psychological contract to help people understand what it means to find your spot, to fit in and succeed in that culture. That's the first thing. Now, when I look at universities, I'm not sure that that level of detail um, exists. Um, and you can probably correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. But getting clear on that is very much the first thing that every organization needs to do to start ensuring that they're driving the strategy. And the other thing is make that connection. Like Move from thinking that culture and strategy are are independent concepts. They are entirely dependent concepts. The only way strategy gets realized is from building a culture to enable that strategy. And I can't say that too often. It's just an absolute fact that we see companies fall over at the start line time and time again. Well, to your question there a little bit earlier, is this part of the normal, has this been part of the normal language within universities? The answer is no. Um, annual climate surveys at best, some means of assessing and getting feedback from staff, quite common. But the idea of having a complete diagnosis of the baseline culture of a university on a regular basis as a program of change has just not been part of the landscape and of the language. So at a time when culture is becoming more, more important, combined with a time when we, we, when we need to shift culture to shift strategy in organizations generally and universities in particular more than we ever have, there's clearly a need for capacity, capability and some expertise into all of our universities right now to be able to do this sort of thing better. I, I can see that from 38 years working on that side of the fence only too clearly. Mm. And I find it astounding, to be honest, the fact that it's, it's acknowledged through university studies that the only way that strategy gets accomplished is through culture, and yet universities themselves aren't embarking on that in a massive way. I think that's really a huge opportunity. It wouldn't be the only area of study where people, where academics in universities have seen problems and can point towards solutions where the practices of universities haven't necessarily followed them. It's it's a really weird sort of thing to observe about universities, universities as organizations that um, sometimes they're quite reluctant to listen to the advice of their own experts in areas that could lead to substantial Im improvements well that sometimes comes from the, the 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 comfort of being um in the situation of not seeing the need for change the burning platforms at the moment are, are, are such that they're going to need to look inside but i think increasingly outside for expertise on how to solve these sorts of dilemmas and I feel you've got the, the burning platforms, one thing. So you recognize the problem and some will, some won't. Then you've got, okay, we need to shift. We need to build a new strategy. Okay, well, you can do that. Now we need to shift our culture. Here's where the hard work starts. How do we do that? What's the dashboard? What's the levers? What are the drivers? What are the things that influence culture effectively and sustainably over time? Well, more often than not, companies say that's communication. So we're just going to communicate the new strategy and expect it to all unfold after that. That's absolutely the last way that you're going to affect culture. The first thing that we need to do to affect culture is to identify what is the right specific culture to drive that strategy. Then what are the leadership behaviors, the communication, the HR practices, and the internal comms to help make that take place. And inside each of those, there are behavior symbols and systems. So there's an enormous piece of coordinated compound work here that go into any successful culture. And just going back to REA Group, that's precisely the framework that we helped them work on in 2012 when they were growing up from being a, I don't know, $6 billion company to a $10 billion company. And how do we actually grow up and scale 
based on a, a sustainable model. Well, just to hearing you describe the, the, the dynamics and the complexities of the culture question, I mean, that, that couldn't be more contrasting with my sense of some of the, the dissonance going on within cultures of universities right now. I mean, we, we have the sector, commentators, leaders from within organizations, ev- everyone working in themselves know that collaboration, innovation, um, different ways of doing things, moving to digital are going to be the ways that the sector will progress. And yet all of the, um, the decision-making and the criteria around appointment, allocation of workload, and certainly around promotion, the quest to be a chair and a professor in a university is met by individual activities, is still unduly impacted by pursuing individual activity, your own publications, working in isolation, addressing in conventional mechanisms um, age-old problems. It's, th- there's a big mismatch between what we say we want from people and how we reward them. Mm, and also measure it. I mean, I think that the old adage that what gets measured gets done, uh, we've seen that happen too often as well, that there's a really good intent around a culture program, but there's no real hard end to it or hard edge to it, no performance edge. Is it being measured? Is it not? Are you being assessed on how effective that is or not? I couldn't agree more. And if we say that we what we think is important is teamwork, collaboration and innovation, but we measure citations, papers and PhD completions and, and make no measurements of the extent of teamwork that's going on amongst academic staff with each other, with professional staff and with outside partners and the extent to which they're embracing new ideas and new thinking then, you know, that we, we've got a complete mismatch, I think, in universities at the moment between cultural behaviours and cultural programmes and the strategies that have been emerging and now are rapidly being becoming a necessity for universities to move forward. There's a really big bit of work to be done there. The other thing I just wanted to finish with today is you heard Mary and, and Henry talking a lot about collaboration and the soft skills that are required to be effective and successful in a place like REA Group or Google or Microsoft or whatever it might be. So actually instilling a culture of collaboration and innovation through a employee base that then feeds through to an empl- uh, customer experience is going to really set up graduates in a much better way than an organization that's more traditional in terms of its culture. And I think so there's going to be a pull from the market that's demanding graduates to have these. I know we had this conversation about soft and hard skills on the interview, have to be able to find ways to communicate, collaborate, innovate with a variety of audiences to an outcome in a sustainable manner and have that energy about them. They're the real graduates of the future. They're the people that are going to set up organizations for success. Well, we're calling them graduates of the future, and that was part of um, Mary and Henry's um, language. But I also heard them say that it won't be just universities they look to to, to for these people from in the future. So we've got a dilemma there of universities needing to change to stay competing with their current competitors or being at risk of being disrupted by other people that will come and provide those services as a replacement for universities. There, There were so many messages and warning signs in some of those messages some of that conversation with henry and mary that, that's there's no doubt that's happening i'm we're going to keep saying it on every episode i imagine and at some stage in the future we're going to talk about one of those major disruptions well you can see it with the people we're working with already can't you carl i mean it's so exciting to be in in the offices of vice chancellors across the country now and seeing them start to absorb some of these messages and be brave enough to try and put programs in place to try and address some of these things. It's a really exciting time to be part of the, the wave of disruption running through the sector. 
certainly a lot of work to be done and I'm uh, I'm excited about it. Looking forward to it. Martin, thanks again. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Carl. 